The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. You're familiar with its constituent parts. And if you have just recently arrived as a student, then you ought to get to know that statement fairly early on so that you're clear as to what the purpose and vision of this institution is. To glorify God by forming ministers of the gospel who are specialists in the Bible, whose understanding of the word of God has produced in their hearts holy affection for their Lord, and who in their interpretation and proclamation of the scriptures lead Christ's church in faithful worship and global ministry. What that statement says is that as a seminary, we want to prepare ministers of the gospel who not only know the gospel in their heads, but who as a result of that knowledge also respond to it in their hearts. Because of their understanding of the gospel, they have come to love and to delight in their Lord and King and Savior. Christian experience cannot reside in the understanding alone. As Edwards put it, he that has doctrinal knowledge and Speculation only, without affection, never is engaged in the business of religion. I'm really risking it today because this is my last opportunity. And you'll begin to think that my sanity is failing because no one in their right mind is going to come to Westminster and attempt to expound Jonathan Edwards on the religious affections. But I'll try to do a Claire Davis on it for you and give you the abridged version in two sentences. What I understand that phrase from the vision statement of the seminary to mean is simply this. Your understanding of the gospel must be complete and entire. It mustn't stop with an intellectual appreciation of Christ, of his person, or of his work. Your heart must be touched Your heart must be inflamed with a vigorous and a strong love and desire for Christ. And true and real Christian experience involves a change of heart and will so that we come to see our Savior God in all his majestic perfections. And we come to love him and we come to delight in him. We come to rejoice in him. Someone told me about another famous American theologian called Tom Landry, who once said, there are many good athletes out there, but very few great ones. And he was asked, what's the difference between a good athlete and a great athlete? To which he replied, It's just a few inches. 
It's the distance from your head to your heart. You see, as far as Landry was concerned, there are athletes and there are sports people who have a head for their game who have a knowledge of their sport, but who lack the passion and the commitment and the heart. Great athletes are people who not only know what to do, but they do it enthusiastically. They are passionate. They are committed. They are energetic in the way in which they go about their sport and their game. And friends, when it comes to Christian living, And when it comes to Christian ministry, that's an important and a necessary emphasis which we need to make. Ministers of the gospel not only know what the gospel and the Bible says, but their affections have been enlivened so that they have come to love and delight in the person who is at the center and heart of the gospel story. Our response to the gospel must be a holistic response so that the whole orientation of our lives is directed to God. And that emphasis, we believe, is a biblical one. Throughout the scriptures, those whom God calls, those whom God uses in the work of his kingdom are people whose hearts as well as their minds have been gripped and mastered by the truth of the gospel. And one outstanding example is Isaiah. In 741 BC, the world was in turmoil. Nations were coming and going. Kingdoms were rising and falling. Alliances were being made and were being broken. And the nation of Judah had drifted so far from God's word that she was on the verge of moral and spiritual bankruptcy. And it was against this background that God raised up one of the great prophets of the Old Testament era. Isaiah stands out as a a great man of God who addressed the nation in a most direct and relevant way. His experience and knowledge of God produced within his heart holy affections for the Lord. And in the world of turmoil in which you and I live, God calls us to minister his word and to preach in a way that addresses the situation and the circumstances in which we live. And in order for us to do that, there must be in our hearts holy affections for the Lord. Our hearts must be captivated by a vision of the holiness and the beauty of our Savior. When Isaiah began his ministry, he was a good and a faithful prophet. He understood the problems of his world. He understood the remedy for the sickness that afflicted his nation. And today we have turned all that into an academic discipline, and we call it by a different name, and we speak of cultural analysis. But it simply means that you understand the world and the situation in which God has placed you to minister. And most of us are very aware of the difficulties which we face in discharging our ministry today. The breakdown of family life, rampant immorality, patterns of living which are clear departures from God's will, injustice, economic and political problems which are compounded by violence and by terrorism, 
And Isaiah understood what the basic problem was, and he states it very clearly in chapter 1, verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. The basic problem was that a nation founded on faith and trust in God had drifted so far away from God that they had turned their backs on him, that they were a nation without God. They were sinners. And that is still the basic problem that we face in our world today. Underneath the terrorism and the division and the sectarianism in Ireland and behind the materialism and the corporate greed and the political corruption of the Western world and back of the unrest in our homes and our schools and our prisons, there is but one ugly monster called sin. And because we understand that, we also understand what the answer is. It is not fundamentally an economic or a political or an educational or a financial or a social or a medical answer. A spiritual problem requires a spiritual solution. And if the fundamental problem with our world and the fundamental problem with our society is sin, then the fundamental answer is a savior. And that's why we are enthusiastic and energetic in presenting the cross and in preaching the Savior. Our world has many things which it wants, but there is but one thing that it needs. It needs Christ. And if you and I as ministers of the gospel don't preach Christ, then who will? If we do not exalt and magnify the perfections and the love and the grace of Christ, then the world will never know how beautiful and how attractive he is. And the peoples of this world will never come to worship and to love him. And Isaiah was faithful in that task of proclaiming and preaching and in his ministry, he emphasized the word of God. Chapter 1, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. <clears throat> Chapter 1, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Listen to the law of our God. And as a prophet of the Lord, Isaiah did what was required of him. He preached the word. And we commit ourselves to preaching. Because we know it's in the word that our sin is revealed. And it's in the word that our Savior is declared. So that whatever else you do in your ministry, this is fundamental, this is basic. Preach the word. It exposes the problem. It reveals the solution. And it magnifies Christ. But don't be content with being an orthodox preacher whose analysis is correct and is biblical yes please please be a specialist in the bible but if you leave westminster as only that then our vision will not have been realized and you will not be properly equipped for the work of the ministry because there must also in your heart 
be these holy affections for the Lord. Look at what happened to Isaiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah's eyes were opened and he saw the Lord. What he actually saw was the holiness of Jesus. John 12:41 says that Isaiah saw the glory of Christ. And that's an important thing for every Christian to see. But it is especially and particularly important for those who have been called as preachers. At times we may wonder and what's happening, we may wonder who's in control. Who has the authority to make things happen around here? And you know how it is in the pastoral ministry when things go against you. When we face our disappointments, when we're on the receiving end of some harsh criticism, when our ministry is not appearing to be productive, when the going is tough and hard, we ask, are you really on the throne, Lord? Are you really in control? Do you really have the authority? And Isaiah says that in the same year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. He saw the glory of God's position. He was high. He was exalted. And he came to see, friends, as you and I must see, that there is no one higher, and there is no one greater than Christ. There is no one more glorious. There is no one more holy than our Savior. He is high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And what Isaiah saw was the glory of Christ's power. He experienced the sublime wonder and awe of God's presence. His eyes were opened to the glory of Christ as he saw him in all his majestic purity and ineffable holiness. And the seraphim called out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. You will leave this seminary and all these flags around this auditorium are testimony to where graduates of Westminster have gone in order to serve Christ. But wherever you go, there is nowhere you can go for you will escape the presence and the glory of Christ. The whole earth is full of his glory. He is the risen Christ who comes to his fearful and frightened disciples gathered in Galilee and who says to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And he is the glorious Christ who meets John on Patmos. And his eyes were like a blazing fire and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when he spoke, his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and of Hades. And Jesus says, don't worry. I'm in control. 
I have the keys. I have the authority. And the revelation of Christ is a picture of power, a picture of position, a picture of purity. And for Isaiah, there was this marvelous universal dimension to Christ's authority and glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us never, ever forget that. Because it's not just here at Westminster and it's not just in Philadelphia. It's in Belfast and it's in Beirut. It's in Beijing and it's in Berlin and it's in Bangkok. It's in the pulpit when you preach. It's in the study when you pray and when you prepare. It's in the hospital when you visit. It's in the classroom when you teach and when you learn. It's all across the world and it's in every situation. The whole earth is full of his glory. And that vision of the glory and the majesty of Christ so gripped and so transformed Isaiah's heart that he remembered it exactly and precisely. He says it happened in the year King Uzziah died. Notable spiritual experiences always have a way of imprinting themselves on our hearts and minds. We remember exactly how and when and where they happened. I remember sitting in a class here almost 20 years ago Right here in this auditorium, John Frame teaching us this basic principle. Theology is the application of the word of God to all of life. And I remember walking back along the road towards the apartment house that the seminary used to own along Willowgrove Avenue. And these words ringing in my mind, theology is the application of the word of God to all of life. And it was clear I couldn't be the same again. This was no mere academic pursuit to increase my knowledge of the Bible. The purpose of this course of study was not to make me more erudite in theology. That was why I thought I came to Westminster, to improve my knowledge, to ask my questions, to get some answers. But I discovered it was much more than that. This was life-changing. Every part of my studies led me back to my sovereign Lord and his love and his grace, his compassion, his power and his wisdom. And it was a call to love him, a call to serve him, a call to worship him. And as you prepare to be a minister of the gospel, I pray that your eyes may be open to see the glory and the majesty and the holiness of Jesus Christ. That all this wonderful, rich theology about a sovereign, gracious Lord who reaches out to sinners in love and mercy is more than just an item on the syllabus of a course of theological study. It's mind-blowing. It's heart-inflaming. It calls for the commitment and the dedication of our lives. Isaiah 5 gives us the text of one of Isaiah's excellent sermons. Verse 8. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. 
Woe to you who are building up your business and your career at the expense of other people. Verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night until they are inflamed with wine. Woe to those who live for pleasure and drinking and partying. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil and put darkness for light and light for darkness. And we can preach a great sermon on that in Belfast. Woe to those who are apologists for terrorism and murder. And you can preach a great sermon on it here in the United States. Woe to you who turn morality on its head. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, champions at mixing drinks. And we read that sermon. And it's so relevant to the society in which you and I seek to minister. Materialism, drunkenness, immorality. And Isaiah points his finger at all these sinful practices in his world. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And he was absolutely right. But then he sees the purity and the holiness of Jesus. What does he say? to me in the light of the holiness of Christ he sees his own culpability woe to me I am ruined I too am a sinner I can't blame it on my parents or my bank account or the, the person who mistreated me it's my own problem woe to me I'm ruined and his sinful pride evaporated like an autumn mist before the solar rays of Christ's holiness. And what he was saying is this. Here I am pointing my finger at everyone else. Only to discover I am no better than they. I am just a sinner like they are sinners. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And for every Christian, there is that eye-opening experience when they see their own sin and their own unworthiness. Listen, brothers, this gospel ministry is not for proud men who think that they are perfect and who think that they are beyond reproach. It's for men who have a keen sense of their own sinfulness and who honestly acknowledge it. It's so easy for us to think too highly of ourselves. And effectiveness in the gospel ministry is a result not only of seeing the holiness of Christ, but also of seeing the helplessness and the sinfulness of our own condition. The sin that you thunder against in others may be present in your own heart. And like the sinners to whom you preach and you minister, you too need the cleansing and the hope of the cross. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And Isaiah understood in a new way. The cleansing and the renewing of Christ, the call from the altar. Although a sinner, he was cleansed and renewed and purified. And from that point on, 
His service was carried out in a new way in the context of God's grace. That was the basis for all his service. Not his academic qualifications. Not his personality. Not his position or his personal charisma. It was simply God's grace given to him as he had been cleansed and forgiven. Don't ever forget that you are a justified sinner. Come often to the foot of the cross and recall the redemption and the salvation which Christ has won for you. And make sure that you are cleansed and fit for service. For before you can hold out a crucified and a risen Savior to others, you need to know his renewing grace in your own life. The message of the cross isn't just a message for other people. It's a message for you and for me personally. One of the greatest problems in the history of the church is that often positions of authority have been occupied by people who have lacked the spiritual qualifications. And when the pulpit has been occupied by men who have no experience of God's grace in their own lives, then the whole work of the kingdom grinds to a halt, even goes into retreat. How can you preach a gospel of redemption and reconciliation if you have no experience of it in your own life? How can you magnify the grace of God to others if you do not on a daily basis know that same grace in your own heart? How can you call on others to embrace the Savior when you have not embraced him yourself? May our eyes be opened continually to the marvelous renewing grace of God in our lives. But in the year that King Uzziah died, not only were Isaiah's eyes opened, his ears were opened. Verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. One of the characteristics of our Presbyterian theology and procedures is that of a congregation making out what we describe as a call to a new minister. We don't talk about a minister being appointed or being successful with regard to a particular vacancy. We say that he's been called to a charge. And that's why we're never ever quite sure what to say to a minister who has received a call. Congratulations isn't quite the right word. And we struggle for the right expression. It's a bit like the minister who was visiting a lady in her home and he asked her in the course of conversation, where's your husband? Oh, your reverence, she said, he's in heaven. Oh, said the minister, I'm sorry to hear that. And then he thought for a moment and uh, said quickly, I mean, I'm glad to hear that. And then after a further moment's thoughtful pause, he added, to be honest, I'm surprised to hear that. <laughs> we don't congratulate a person on receiving a call because we believe it's God who calls. Through the congregation on the one hand and in the heart of the minister on the other, God works to call the right man to the right place. 
And that's why Christian service and Christian ministry requires that your ears be open to the call of God. It's that sense of God's calling and God's speaking, which is essential in the ministry. Isaiah's ears were open to hear what God had to say. And what will keep you going in all the ups and downs of Christian service will be that deep-seated conviction of your heart that you have been called by God. As you discharge the duties of the ministry, make sure that your ears stay tuned to God's call and to God's word. Don't embark on any plan or course of action on the basis of your own notions or your own ideas. Be sure always that you're listening to what God says. Because the challenges and the demands of Christian ministry in this at this end of this millennium, require all of us to be close to God and to be attentive to his voice. And that's why our personal walk with the Lord is so important. Keep your spiritual antennae tuned to heaven. Don't tune in to any other station. Don't touch the dial. Keep listening to God. Stay responsive to his call. Know what pleases him. And know what is dishonoring to him. And delight in doing his will. It's then that God will use you. That brings me just to this final point. Isaiah's eyes were opened. His ears were opened. His heart was opened. Prior to the vision of the exalted Christ, Isaiah had preached, Thus says the Lord. Thus declares the Lord. But if you notice after chapter 6 on into chapter 7 and 8, the language changes. Chapter 7 verse 3, then the Lord said to Isaiah. Chapter 8 verse 1, the Lord said to me. Chapter 8 verse 3, and the Lord said to me. And before he ever said anything to anyone, the Lord's word came to him personally. His heart was opened with a longing and a desire for the word and for the Lord of the word who spoke. He had this vital relationship with the living Lord. To put it another way, his work for God flowed from his worship of God. His worship preceded his work. And that's always the correct order. Only a worshiping servant can be an effective servant. You see, what happened to Isaiah was not that he became privy to some new technique or new skill or new organizational plan or innovative program. His effectiveness came from a new vitality in his relationship with the Lord because he saw the Lord. Friends, you are exceedingly privileged to be students at what we're not embarrassed to call the best reformed seminary in the world. You have the privilege of being taught and instructed by some of the best teachers it's possible to have. Because the task of this seminary doesn't stop there. You must be a servant of Christ whose eyes and ears and heart are open to the Lord. 
You must be someone whose understanding of the word of God has produced in your heart holy affection for your Lord. And let that knowledge of the word and of the gospel percolate into your soul and give rise to a love and a desire and an appetite for God. So that you will really long to know him better. And as you preach the word. Preach it in such a way that others will come to love the same saviour. And to rejoice in his salvation. Don't leave your congregation with just a sound and a good understanding of biblical truth. Lead them to the throne of Christ. And have them by in worship and adoration before the Lord whose glory fills the whole earth. Our Lord is so majestic, so powerful, so loving, so gracious, so wise, so good. Don't you just want to know him better? And don't you just long and pray that others would see him in all his resplendent beauty? Let that love for the Lord motivate you and inspire you as you prepare to be his servant.